Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. Tonight is April 21st, 2022. Now, I don't know about you, but we are still celebrating the powerful and moving Resurrection Sunday that we experienced together just a few short days ago. That's right. It's so nice to see that you, our family, you are not MIA tonight, but that you're joyful. Smiling faces are staring back at us right now. You're with us, heart and soul. Can somebody say amen? Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, how motivated are you tonight to ensure that the glory of God rests on the next generation? Oh, it's a 10. Yeah, we're a 10 as well. We're inspired to equip and empower them for the work ahead. And we are able to do it because God has made us able to succeed in accomp accomplishing this vision generationally. Church, you are part of LCM, and we are those who will gladly endure hardship, imprisonment, discouragement, any of these things, and even more, all for the hope of the resurrection that has become our actual lifestyle. Our task is not to finish the global mission within our lifetimes. It is to raise up the generations that will, in fact, complete God's will, and then we get to be resurrected along with them as it is accomplished. Ooh, not long after the OG Resurrection Sunday, like the original, the disciples on one occasion had an opportunity to go find Jesus on a mountain and spend some good quality time with him in all of his glory. We'd actually like to begin our time together tonight in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Matthew 28 and verse 16 says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, somebody say, saw him. Saw they worshiped him. Say, worshiped him. Worshiped him. Um, but some doubted. What? See, we're not even talking about a great multitude, multitude of onlookers here. We're actually talking about the 11. Somebody say, the 11. And some of the 11 saw the resurrected Christ and were still doubting. They had just experienced the actual resurrection of Jesus. They were seeing him with their own eyes. They were hearing him as he was instructing them. And some of them were still doubting. Man, this is similar to, you know, experiencing an earth-shaking resurrection celebration together on a Sunday morning. Coming into contact with that resurrection power of Jesus in our own lives. And then feeling the twinges of doubt by that next Thursday. As you are wrestling with these concepts, we wanted to re read a familiar passage of Scripture to you and uh, give it to you, painted in a slightly different light. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3 together. Somebody say, somehow, as you're turning there. Somehow. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Guys, Paul wanted to know Christ, and that's what we want as well, Amen. don't we? Yeah. Paul wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. We as a body are experiencing that same power more and more, and it's incredible. Absolutely. Paul wanted to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. What an amazing aspiration that we are also growing in day by day. 
Man, Paul wanted to become like Jesus in his death. Can anyone in here relate to that same kind of desire? We certainly can too. Man, and then he says, and so somehow, wait, 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 somehow, like somehow attain to the resurrection of dead. What is that even supposed to mean uh, to somehow get to the resurrection of the dead? I mean, I got, I got it, pastor. Okay. Surely the NIV has botched this verse that we are right, that we're reading in it right here. Surely after those supernatural desires that Paul had, that he was just, uh, he had no doubt, no doubts about the resurrection power that was work in his own life. Did he? Look, I'm not sure that I'm super confident on this. Uh, I, we actually found a slide and got some of our favorite translations to see how they interpreted this same verse. It just can't say this, can it? This is Philippians 3.11. What, let's try the CJB, Pastor Wade. I like the CJB. It's got Hebraic roots. It's nice. Let's see what it says. So that somehow, oh, that's the same thing. Somehow I might arrive. Oh, what about Young's Literal? Carlos, are you a Young's Literal fan? Yeah, no, I do too. It's a great translation. Young's Literal says, if anyhow, I may attain to the, oh man, that, that's, that's not that's really not what really we're looking us. for yeah. there. Then the ESV is an amazing translation. Let's see, let's see what it says. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, Amplified's going to get this here. It, it's surely not just, the, all of those translations can't be so doubtful. That if possible... I may attain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in the body. That doesn't sound very confident to me. Listen, did you hear the words? Anyhow, possibly, I may, I might, uh, somehow. It sounds that in the midst of this expression of supernatural desire for power, for fellowship, and even death, Paul just might have been having a Matthew 28 kind of moment here in Philippians 3. But actually, all of this brings us to the title of tonight's sermon. The title of tonight's sermon is Somehow. Say that with me. Somehow. So since Resurrection Sunday, have you maybe encountered this somehow kind of thinking so far in your week this week? Maybe like the disciples, you've been worshiping the Lord well enough you worshiped him really hard during that first set of worship tonight. I know that I did. Man, it was amazing. But the doubts about a purposeful, fulfilling life, they continually want to creep into your mind. Like, if I really make my life only about others, my children, my disciples, my brothers around me, could I really find the level of purpose that I haven't yet experienced? Maybe this somehow hits you more like Paul. Your desires are more than just to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. You genuinely want to have your fruitful actions come from the resurrection in Jesus. The truth is, is you've been living a selfish life, though, for so long that it's been hard to unwrench yourself from those base thoughts of me, myself, and I. Does this relate to anybody in the house tonight? Trying to, trying to redo that holy trinity in a righteous way, Pastor. <laughs> righteous way. You are, in fact, trying to entrust the work to the next generation. 
You're trying to increase in your motivation to ensure that the glory of God rests on their shoulders. You're trying to daily equip and empower them for their work ahead. But you've fallen back into old habits. And you're really feeling like you're falling flat on your face even in the last few days. Man, I I know you're feeling it as much as we are. And as cringeworthy as those particular moments might have been, you know, incredibly, Moses just might have have you beat as we turn to Exodus chapter 3. He is not so much stating that somehow he just might possibly be able to respond rightly to the Lord and become obedient to his will. Nope. This situation is less like somehow and more like someone else, Lord. We're going to pick up in verse 14 of chapter 3 together. Exodus three fourteen says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I mean, you want to talk about a mic drop kind of moment. I don't care what your week has been like, my friends. I don't care if it's looked like a somehow kind of moment or someone else, Lord. Please pick them. This right here in this verse is the piercingly powerful solution for us all. See, re-wedding your soul once again with the character of your king has an overwhelmingly transformative effect within your mind, your will, and your emotions. You guys ready to re-wet your soul with the character of the king tonight? Come on, here's what we mean. Knowing that the I am who I am is the God who shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. This has the power to transform a man. Knowing that the I am who I am is the compassionate and gracious God, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in love. This has the power to transform a man. Knowing that the I am who I am makes known the end from the beginning to those who actually seek his face. This understanding has the power to transform a man. Knowing that the I am who I am, he removes burdens. He sets men free. He rescues men. He answers them and he tests them. This has the power to transform a man. See, when you're encountering truths like these, it is impossible for a person to stay in a somehow way of thinking. No. See, we know the character of God, and we are confident in his character. We've fallen in love with his ability to transform us, and we're asking for more of that transformation now. Is anybody asking for more transformation now? The truly mind-blowing truth about all this is God's proclaimed name here in this passage, it's not reduced to just the present state of being. It is not confined to just our current time period or just our current generation. Look at the footnote on the following slide with us. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or I will be what I will be. Come on now, brothers and sisters. What does it do for you to know that Adonai will show love to your next generation and the generation after that? Because you're teaching them the love and the fear of the Lord. This has the power to transform a future generation. What does it do for you? Look, I'm talking to you, Justin Linton. I'm talking to you tonight. What does it do for you? 
to know that Adonai will be the compassionate and gracious God, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in love to your next generation. This truth actually has the power to transform your future generation. Come on now, church. What does it do for you to know that Adonai will make known the end from the beginning? Because you are teaching those after you to actually seek his face. This understanding has the power to transform a future generation. What does it do for you tonight, Adam, to know that Adonai will remove burdens? He will set men free. He will rescue them. He will answer their prayers, and he will test those who are coming after you. This has the power to transform an entire future generation of us here. Church, if this revelation from Adonai's mouth was not enough, look at the very next verse. Look at Exodus 3 and verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Come on now, think about this, church. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is an incredible statement. Can you believe that of anything that the Lord could add to his great name, he chose to be identified by three specific generations of these Jewish men? And it wasn't just for that moment. It would be part of his preferred name from generation to generation, even to today and even forward into the future, that he might be known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We want to help you here. You see, in this passage, what the Lord is essentially saying is, I am the God of all of your generations, those in the past, those in the present, and those in the future as well. It is these crucial elements, the present nature of God, the future unchanging nature of God, and the generational faithfulness that he has shown since the beginning. It's these specific characteristics that Adonai spoke to Moses, but also that Adonai empowered Moses to represent in all of their glory and might. Amen. Moses was learning to take his own somehow or even his own someone else, Lord, way of thinking, to raise it up, to lift it up to the character of Yahweh God, and to see it transformed between his, before his very eyes. Look, you know that this particular passage came up in a certain first century conversation between Jesus the Messiah and a group of men called the Sadducees. The Sadducees had a major problem with their theology. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh-oh. And they actually weren't even ashamed to challenge anyone on this very topic. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 29. And we're actually going to pick it up in the middle of a conversation. Just as Jesus is replying to the Sadducees' sad little pitiful attempt to get him in a theological trap regarding the resurrection. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 29. Jesus replied, he's talking to the Sadducees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. 
but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Guys, Jesus used the same empowering truths that his father revealed to Moses earlier. His present nature. His future unchanging nature. And the generational faithfulness that he has shown since the beginning. And Jesus says, the men that you say will not rise in a resurrection... Not only will they experience the resurrection, in fact, they are alive and well right now. Amen. That's what Jesus is looking at them and saying. You thought that these men were dead. You thought that they died. But we assure you, no, they are very, very alive. This is why much of the Newer Testament uses some very specific phrasing regarding those believers. You know the ones who were no longer physically walking among them in their day. The very specific phrasing we've put on a slide for you, and it's the phrase, fallen asleep. In John 11, we're talking about the story of Lazarus. And it says, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has uh, fallen asleep, but I'm going to go there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he's, getting, he's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of Lazarus' death. <laughs> that idea of falling asleep. Look in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, over and over this phrase is used in the New Testament for a very specific reason. Fallen asleep is more than just a polite euphemism, though. That's, that's always the way that I saw it, like, oh, yeah, the Bible says fallen asleep, but it really means that they're dead. It's not that at all, actually. It is a brazen testimony that those who are righteous, they're still alive. And what's more is that the very same I am who I am, he is also still their God, even to this day. This crushes and annihilates any somehow way of thinking that still resides within us. For those who have fallen asleep, you know for sure that any somehow thinking that they had, well, it's just no longer present at all as they reside in the presence of Yahweh God. Guys, the righteous are indeed still living. And what's more than that, they're waiting for us to sow into the same kind of death that they did. Are you guys with us tonight? The righteous are indeed still living. They're waiting for us to sow into that same kind of death that they did, which begs the question, what kind of death did they sow into? We are so glad that you asked that brilliant question. Those who have fallen asleep before us have sowed into the death of their own selfish ambition. They sowed into the death of their own concealment of things from God himself because these things he was already aware of anyway. 
They sowed into the death of their own contemptuous acts towards people through acts of omission, withholding things, or commission against them. They sowed into the death of their own boasting about blessings in their own lives that acted as false proof of their right standing with God. As these righteous that have gone before us, they sowed into their own, the death of their own pride in thinking that they should be elevated. They sowed into the death of accepting credit for things that they did not create. They sowed into the death of their own desire to be seen as more associated with this monarchy than their actions merited. And they sowed into the death of their own cry to be relieved from the penalty of their actions rather than crying out for transformation. These righteous men sowed into their own death in these things because they were not looking for their reward in there, here and now. Church, we are not looking to a reward right now, are we? We can't be looking to a reward right now. We are especially not looking to be rewarded for the sacrifices that we are sacrificing today. No, we are looking ahead to our reward. Turn with us to Luke 14 so that we can see this enacted. Luke chapter 14 and verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Come on. So when you are truly sowing into your own death, which is to say that when you're truly becoming more like him in his death, Then you know the resurrection power of Christ and are certainly, you're absolutely able to attain to that resurrection of the dead. And then you will receive the reward of the righteous. You see, Paul did know what he was saying back in Philippians 3. He actually knew exactly what he was saying. He didn't say, and so somehow this is going to happen? No, he was daily purposefully sowing into his own death. And because he was becoming like his Savior in his death, he was certain that out of all this death being sown, somehow life was going to bust out of that thing. Somehow life was going to do it. Come on, we want to grab hold of this revelation with the kind of depth that Paul did. We want you to take a look at this picture. Turn your attention to the screen. This is a picture from our brothers at Submission Ministries. Pastor Zeke, Pastor Zach, Pastor Jake took the time in 2016 to fell this giant tree that you see here. But there's something that we want to draw your attention to that might be difficult from where you're sitting. And we've, so we've highlighted it for you so you can see. Come on. So this next slide has that circle for you in red, a tree. It's... If you can tell there, it's not in the background. It's actually growing right out of the stump on the bottom of the picture. It's growing straight out of that dead-looking stump right there. As you're contemplating this picture in this image, I want you to turn with us to Isaiah chapter 11 so that we can gain some heavenly insight 
into the process that Paul understood and implemented. The very same process that we are learning to implement in our own lives. Come on now, this is going to speak to every one of us in this room. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. It says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. See, we want to tell you that in this prophetic passage, Isaiah helps us to know the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah in a beautiful and powerful way that is going to inform and it's going to empower us in our daily lives. Somebody say, my daily life. The first thing that we want you to embrace with is that this passage is of the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. The second thing that we'd like for you to note is that this passage has only been partially fulfilled. Partially. And has yet to reach its ultimate fulfillment. We, of course, are speaking about the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is then when all of creation will truly see the branch miraculously coming out of dry ground, seeming this dry, seemingly dead stump of Jesse, which represents the Jewish people and more specifically the state of the Messianic line at the time of Jesus' return. We wanted to read this next slide to you. This is Bible scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Somebody say Fruchtenbaum. Fruchtenbaum. He did a great job. He says, he's commenting on Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, and he says the following. The picture given, he's talking about the verse is of a tree which has been cut down. Isn't that similar to the photo that we just showed? Leaving only a dead stump. A single shoot remains growing low, near to the ground, eventually bearing fruit. It is interesting that this particular prophecy does not use the name of David, but uses the name of David's father, Jesse. That is pretty interesting, actually. David is normally associated with kingship, royalty, and wealth. It should not be forgotten, however, that in his youth, living in the house of Jesse, David was a poor shepherd boy. During the lifetime of David, the house of Jesse was raised from poverty in Bethlehem to honor and majesty in Jerusalem. Look at the highlighted portion with us. The emphasis of verse 1 is that although Messiah will be a descendant of David, he will not appear until the house of David has been once again reduced to what it was in the days of Jesse. That's why they use Jesse and not David. This verse concentrates on the lowly origin of Messiah at the time of his birth, rather than the majesty of his kingdom, which will be seen at his second coming. From the stump of Jesse, however, grows a shoot, low to the ground, but not without fruit. Eventually, this shoot will become a tree in its own right. Church, the emphasis of the entire kingdom is that the Messiah is a descendant of David from the house of Jesse. With that being said, David descended from his father Jesse, and Jesse's house was quite poor and lowly before David ascended to the kingship. And this passage in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, specifically refers to Jesse, highlighting the lowly and impoverished state. The Messianic line will again be reduced to this dry, dead, stump-like state before Jesus the Messiah comes again. So based on what you know so far, this passage is about the Jewish Messiah coming back first and foremost for the Jewish people. This passage has not and will not reach its fulfillment 
uh, complete fulfillment until Messiah's second coming. Just before Messiah's second coming, the messianic line through Jesse must again be reduced to dry, dead-looking stump that Jesse's line was before David rose to the kingship. And Messiah will return like a healthy branch springing forth from that dry, dead stump, like straight life straight out of death. It will be like life straight from death when Messiah returns. As you look at this particular slide again with us, we want you to see God's plan very clearly. So we read Isaiah 11.1 to you. We highlighted branch to you. We showed you the branch and the picture springing forth. We want to draw your attention to an English word, the English word that we read earlier, branch. It's highlighted on your screen there. In Hebrew, the word is netzer. Somebody say netzer with us. Netzer. The netzer is the branch, the life that is bursting forth from the dry, dead-looking stump. It's what's highlighted in that left picture. It's what's circled in red. That is the branch, or in Hebrew, the netzer. The first and foremost applies, this first and foremost applies to the nation of Israel. You must never, ever lose sight of that fact. And this also has the most profound of implications for not just Israel, but the entire world. With this picture of Isaiah 11.1 firmly embedded in your spirit, Let's look down at verse 10 in Isaiah 11 to see the inevitable impact of the reality of the Netzer. Okay, you need to have your Bible open to this because it's, it's amazing. Isaiah 11 and verse 10. It says that in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place is going to be glorious. Are you catching that, church? In that day. This root of Jesse, it's going to stand up, it's going to rise up, and it becomes a banner, not only for Israel, but for all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages, all the tribes of the entire world. In verse 11, it says, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people of his people Israel, from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. Look at verse 12. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. What you are seeing is the impact of this Netzer principle on the entire world. That what looked dead, what looked dry, what looked like life could not come from is the very place that life springs forth. And as it is accomplishing that for the nation of Israel, what does it do? That hope that springs forth, that life that comes forth becomes a banner for all of the peoples, for all of the nations. But in verse 12, you see the beauty that these two things are combined, that what he has done first for Israel is then applicable to the rest of the world. He will raise a banner for the nations and, somebody say and, and and he gathers the exiles of Israel. He never forgets about their place. They are the first and foremost. The way that that we have said it as a church is that you might be able to receive blessings with them, but you will never be able to receive the resurrection power of God without them. Can somebody say amen? 
Church, so now, tonight, tonight you know and can celebrate what is to come. The end of the story. The culmination of the ages. What is to come for Israel and even for our future generations. So at this point, we need to show you where the reality of the Netzer started. The initiation point that began the whole Netzer process. All the way back in Matthew chapter 2. This is Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Everybody say Nazarene. Nazarene. See, this passage has caused difficulty for many New Testament readers, precisely because they do not understand the basis of the newer covenant, covenant or the process of the Netzer. The Tanakh does not contain any prophecy that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene because he lived in Nazareth. Doesn't actually say that anywhere. In fact, that completely misses Matthew's point. And this next slide is going to help you to get this revelation of the Netzer that we've been working toward. This slide is entitled, He Shall Be Called a Nazarene. We're going to find out what the real pronunciation of that might be. Look at the left side of your screen. Nazareth. This is from Easton's Bible Dictionary. It means separated, generally supposed to be the Greek form of the Hebrew netzer, a shoot or sprout. Let's get a second witness on the right side of the screen. Nazareth, a place name meaning branch. That's from the Holman Bible Dictionary. See, Jesus being called a Nazarene has nothing to do with the former place of his residence. I mean, let that sink in for a second. That would be, uh, we really should have called Jesus of Bethlehem then, because that's where he was born. See, but what is going on here instead is that Jesus is called a Nazarene, and it actually has everything to do with Jesus being the Netzer. The shoot, the sprout, the branch. It's Jesus the Netzerene who lived in Netzereth. See, we're going to check out one commentator who had an accurate understanding of this Netzer principle. Listen to this cornerstone biblical commentary. It says, branch, Hebrew, Netzer. The Hebrew name for Netzereth or Nazareth is Natsar or Natserath. And the term Notstri is a Talmudic and modern Hebrew term identifying a follower of Jesus of Netzereth. See, are you seeing the threefold witness right here? Let, let us help you. There's a person who is the Netzer. That person is the branch, the Messiah. It is Jesus the Christ. Then he lives in a town called Netzereth huh. to remind you of that very function. Then we discover it's not just Jesus of Netzereth 
who is associated with the principle and this process. We actually find that even to this very day, there are some modern Jews that refer to the followers of Jesus of Netzereth. They're called the Notri. They're calling little Netzers is what they actually call us. See, our God knows and makes known the end from the beginning. He has put on full display that Israel and the Gentiles that would be grafted into their promises are the fruit that will grow from the Netzer, the branch that is Messiah. Now, we've, we've laid some groundwork here for you. We've talked to you about an important principle, and you need to get ready. You need to go ahead and buckle up your seatbelt, because what it means for us in our everyday lives is everything. So we're going to turn to Romans 11 together. As you're turning there, I want to say, in this passage right here in Romans 11, Paul is going to show us Gentiles what he was hoping for, what he himself was working toward in the days that he was granted by the Lord before he fell asleep for his extended nap. This is Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 13. He says, I am talking to you Gentiles. Oh, it's time for us to listen up because this is specifically addressed to us Gentiles. Goes on to say, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Guys, these verses are addressed specifically to us Gentiles. And Paul is making sure that we know as much as we work among Gentiles for the salvation of the Gentiles, the ultimate goal has been and it always will be the salvation of Paul's people, the people of Israel. Amen. How is this going to happen? It's not somehow. No, it's going to happen somehow. Not in the sense that it might possibly happen. No, in the sense that it is going to happen. He understood that a netzer would rise. Keep reading in verse 15 with us. Verse 15 says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Israel's acceptance is life from the dead for all of us. Salvation for the Jews is the very trigger for the resurrection of the dead in Jesus that we're all looking ahead to. Messiah, the Netzer, will spring forth, and he will bear lasting fruit, and it's going to be glorious. Somebody say glorious. glorious. The question for us tonight, church, is how do we get to this glorious end? How do we prepare for the coming Netzer and the coming salvation of his people? How do we participate in the process of the Netzer now? Turn with us to Colossians 3. Say somehow as you're turning there. Somehow. Say it like you mean it this time, though. Somehow. Somehow. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Is that past tense, present tense, or future tense? <laughs> you have been raised? Okay. It's past tense in the text, but it's certainly all of those, all three of those for us. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
for you died. Now, is that past, present, or future? Past, right? For you died, like in the past. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Guys, the resurrection is not somehow. We have been raised with Christ. It is a certainty. And we are learning to live lives that display the certainty that this resurrection really is for us. Come on, amen. The Netzer will spring forth, and all of Israel will be saved. But until the fullness of that reality occurs, we are to live lives that display a revelation that we have already died and that we have already been raised with Christ as well. Church, our lives are currently hidden with Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly realms. Our position is affixed in the heavens. Your reward is future, and it is kept safe in heaven for you by your Savior. What this looks like in the most practical of ways. I mean, I'm looking at a man like Jaron Snell. I'm looking at a man like Juan Grimaldo. I'm looking at a man like Paul Rosales. I'm looking at a man like Ray Ludvigson. The men who walked in this room that we all first met many years ago, those men are dying and gone. They're dead. Those men are MIA. But now there's been a resurrected man that is standing here. See, church, we are so proud of you that you, saints, are truly fighting for your own death. You're learning that you actually died the very moment that your life was first hidden in Christ. And you're diligently catching up to that kingdom reality, that kingdom fact. So, wait, I know we're supposed to be fighting for our death, but... But why is it that I feel so alive when I'm in in God's presence? Why, when I get close to these other people, do I feel so alive? I, I feel the energy. I feel the very life of Christ. And I feel it so acutely, especially as I'm sitting in this local body. The answer to that question, Pastor Wade, actually brings us back to one of our pictures from earlier. You guys remember that one? The truth is, for us, right here, right now, We actually feel just like this branch right here that's circled in the picture. We feel like this Netzer. How is this possible? Guys, the only way that we are able to participate in the life of this Netzer, I'm talking about Pastor Wade and I here. The only time that we, the only way that we are able to participate in this kind of life, it's because of the way that you, Our brothers all around us live like you are the stump in this picture. You are fully aware of your own death. You are sowing into death day by day. These are the very actions that bring us life. Because you guys died. Because your lives are now hidden with Christ. We are able to spring up in life right from that death that you freely give for our sake. Guys, it's in this way. The life that is springing forth in us because of your death, it's the first signs among us of the ultimate fulfillment of the branch, the branch that is going to spring to life and bear fruit. We know somehow that this will indeed happen because we are experiencing the life that your own deaths are producing. See, we're proud of you, church. You're not trying to get your reward now. 
You're not trying to grab a hold of your past life again. No, you are rejecting those things because you've died and your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. It's one thing to see yourself as the branch because you're getting a, that resurrection life. It's another thing. You, church, are seeing yourselves as the stump. And in doing so, your brothers, your generations, your disciples can go right out of the death of your own lives and experience true life. Let us help you to see this is what you are looking at yourselves in as this is you. Somebody say, this is me. This is me. See, you're done trying to grasp for your reward now. You know that you can't get rewarded now and later, but you're joyfully, you're joyfully saying, I want to be rewarded later. I'm going to choose to die now so I can be rewarded, glorified with him only when the Messiah returns. See, it's not until Christ appears that our lives spring into being all over again, appearing with him in glory. So for now, the glorious part of it all it's the honor of seeing your death produce a new Netzer in the life of your brothers around you Amen. and in the generations after Amen. you. See, when you see yourself as the stump here on this picture, the, the honor and the glory that you get to participate in is watching that Netzer spring right out of your death in the men around you and in the generations coming from you. That is the honor that we're experiencing together today. And what you don't even fully realize now is that in grabbing hold of this way of life, this process of the Netzer, we are preparing ourselves for what is also to come. Guys, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, have their worst time still ahead of them. Before Jesus returns, they will again be reduced to nothing more than that stump right there. How do you think that the Netzer is going to spring forth from something like that? Well, the truth is, is that it will only be through the death of grafted in Gentiles. That will enable the Netzer to spring forth from their nation and from the Davidic line of Christ. Church, the Apostle Paul put it very well in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read it to you from Philippians 1 and verse 21. It says this, for to me. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, what this means for us is since you're still breathing in this tent that we call a body, then it's for Christ and Christ alone. Since you're joyfully embracing your own death, you can know that the brothers around you, that the generations following you, are benefiting greatly from the life of sacrifice that you now display. Your death is for their ongoing gain. You acting as a stump is what's producing life through the Netzer principle inside of them. Since you are sowing into your own death, since you are looking at this and saying, I want to be the stump here, I want to sow into death that life might be for others, you can be confident that the nation of Israel will somehow, most certainly, feel the impact of the very sacrifices that you, LCM, that you as you sit there, that you're freely offering today, they will experience life. So for our final scripture together this evening, look at this slide with us. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 30 and 31. And as for us, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? 
I die every day. I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Guys, we have renounced our former way of life. We've applied ourselves to experiencing personal death in our, pers in our present time. We can know that our reward is not now. No, but it is waiting for us at the resurrection. If you are committed to dying daily with us, to making your lives the stump that others can spring up from, then at this time, stand to your feet with us tonight. Come on, somebody say it with me. Say, I will die for your glory. Church, it is our greatest honor that we will die for the glory of Christ. Somebody look at your neighbor right now and say, I will die for your glory. See, it is our greatest joy and privilege to be able to die for the glory of another. Somebody lift your hands up and say, I will die for their glory. Church, we are committed to being the stump that Jesus and his resurrected nation will spring right out of. With your hands raised, pray with us tonight. Father, we thank you for the honor, the honor, mighty God, of dying daily, Lord God. We thank you for your word and the way that it produces this kind of mentality, this process of the netzer inside of us, Lord. Lord, that we can view ourselves as the stump, but be honored, Lord God, and experience your glory as we see life spring forth in the brothers and the generations around us. Father, we die daily, Lord God. We mean it tonight, mighty King. We die for your glory, Lord God, and we die for the glory of those that are coming after us. Father, we worship you in spirit and truth tonight, and we honor you in Jesus' name.